0: Uh, is the church just another political movement? Is that all it is? And it's tried to, uh, change the political governance of human beings and, and bring about a utopia here on earth. Uh, is it, uh, simply a political ideology, you know, and mm. it's up to its followers and adherence to take it and reinterpret it into whatever political situation they think is most beneficial, or is it attempting to impose this human government on somebody else?
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. Your faith is not a journey that you can order out for, be delivered to, or even... You mean it's not a Google online course I can do? Amazon orders for your faith. It is something that you have to do, and we are here to come alongside you as you walk that journey, as you grow your faith, to challenge you, to encourage you, and to ultimately help you learn how to critically think for yourself. So you know what you believe and why you believe it. My mm-hmm. name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host and we cannot do the Salty Pastor podcast <laughs> without the Salty Pastor himself, Dr. Douglas Peak.
0: I was thinking about that. Welcome everybody. If you could order your faith through Amazon someone say, where's your faith? I don't know. I ordered it. Somebody stole it off my porch (laughs) porch.
1: and it doesn't come two day delivery anymore.
0: I know. Whatever happened to prime. I need my faith now.
1: So yeah, this has been
0: great. Everybody. We're going to wrap up our series on my political Jesus. And it's really interesting. I had no idea how much people had been thinking about politics and faith and ho- how they intersect and what they should be doing or not doing or how they should perceive or not perceive because the amount of comments, uh, that I got is, I know this is anecdotal, but it was off the charts on, thank you so much for talking about this. Cause mm. nobody's talking about it. So
1: yeah, I've basically heard the same thing. I've had so many people that have just been really loving this series. They are mm-hmm. like, I, I know some of this internally, but to hear someone vocalize it has just really made it really clear for me. And some people Mm. are like, I've literally never thought about this, this way Mm -hmm. in my entire life. And this is a reawakening for me and what I should be doing As far as what the church should be doing, what I should be doing and how I should be viewing politics as a whole. So I think as a whole, this has been a resounding success, pastor. (laughs) Resounding success. You're hitting on something that we really need to hear, especially as we're heading into a political season with the Mm. midterms coming up. Mm So, um, I want to know pastor you, you've talked about the church's mission. You've talked about our mission. How are you wrapping things up this week? What do you have left to talk <laughs> yes. about? You've talked about everybody. I don't know what you, <laughs> anybody what, left? what else are you talking about? Well, I about? think
0: we're, what, what I want to do is I just want to pull everybody back to a very core idea and that is we're trying to answer some very difficult questions. And the first major question we're trying to answer is what is the role of the church when it comes to human government? Okay. Uh, is the church just another political movement? Is that all it is? And it's try to, uh, change the political governance of human beings. And, and bring about a utopia here on earth? Uh, is it uh, simply a political ideology, you know, and mm. it's up to its followers and adherents to take it and reinterpret it into whatever political situation they think is most beneficial? Or is it attempting to impose this human government on somebody else? The reason I ask those questions in that way is because that's exactly what Islam is designed to do. See, Islam, when you go and read it, you read the Hadith, it is a geopolitical political belief system uh the how it's how you are to govern people politically how you are to conduct economic uh uh interactions partnerships uh, all of those things are dictated and controlled by the, the hadiths in islam uh, in hinduism It's all about human governance and how humans are to abide by certain things, paths of devotion and so forth. I don't have time to go into Hinduism because it's extremely complex stuff. Uh, Atheism, secular humanism, scientific materialism, uh, has this as their stated goal. They don't, they want human government that they think can bring about a utopia and the dawn of the age of man. And to do that, we must get rid of religion. This has been reflected in the 20th century ideologies of communism and socialism. So the question then becomes, well, what exactly is the mission of the church? What is it when it comes to politics? Cause it's none of those things I just described. Christianity doesn't postulate a religious ceremonial approach to life. You don't have to listen to a specific type of music. You don't have to dress a certain way so that everybody knows you're a Christian. You don't have to eat a certain dietary, uh, palate in order to be a Christian or follower of Christ. So it it doesn't come across and it wasn't never imposed a new religious ceremonial approach to. Life. It also doesn't, uh, have a very specific political ideology. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why so many people misunderstand and totally pull out of context, the Bible, particularly the new Testament. When they say, well, the, the writers of the new Testament supported slavery. Well, that's just patently ridiculous. They did not. But it's because they didn't have an alternative specific political ideology that they proposed, then people assume that, well, I'm just going to compare it to the one that I have proposed. And since there isn't one that argument from silence, they, they draw these really horrendous, false conclusions. Um, there are strengths and weaknesses to the fact that Christianity is not a specific political ideology. On the one hand, uh, its weakness is that political leaders, kings, lords, dictators, uh, can use it for political purposes,
1: right? Because it's so neutral, they can adopt it and say, well, this is actually what I'm doing, or this is what it says it is.
0: Yeah. And you know, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But the other side of it though, is it's brilliant. So its strength is, is it is allowed because in its authentic pure form, it is allowed for the discovery and development of the highest form of human government that the world has ever known or has ever existed mm. with the most amount of Liberty, the most amount of freedom, uh, the experiment in human right, uh, self-government mm. and uh, the experiment is still happening, but without Christianity, that would have never have happened. You see in England, beginning with King Henry, the eighth Christianity was used to validate a King's authority. He said, well, it supports the divine right of Kings. We talked a little bit about this last week in our study. Right. Uh, bloody Mary, his daughter came in and said, well, I don't want to be the church of England. I want to be Catholic. So she started going around and killing off, uh, Protestant clergymen and people who were opposed to becoming Catholic again, after the Protestant Reformation, uh, every King or King appointed in England from that time, even today is considered the head of the church of England, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if they even believe in God or not, but they're the head of the church, Right? which is the Anglican church in England. And in America, do you know what the Anglican church is? The, this church of England, where the Royal person, like right now it's Prince Charles is head of the church. Do you know what it's called King in America Charles now? King Charles. Sorry. Do you know what it, do you know what the name of that church is in America? What? The Episcopalian church. Oh, I did the not Episcopals, know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's really fascinating is that, uh, human government, particularly these Kings in England used Christianity for their own political purposes and their own political ends. But here's something that's really fascinating. It was Christianity though that became the seedbed of ideas and principles that defeated their political authority and rulership. Isn't that interesting? Mm. It was Christianity and how it came about it. Someday we'd love to do a deep
1: also. Yeah. Conquers.
0: So it's really fascinating because what happened is if I can give a brief history of it, I've, I've said this before, but. Is that King Henry started the Anglican church, the church of England, and he was the head of it. And then what happened is then when he died, all right, his daughter took over. Then Mary took over and Mary wanted to make the, the, uh, England Catholic again. And so she became known as bloody Mary cause she was killing off all these people. And during this time, if you were a Protestant pastor or part of the church of England, you went underground, right? Okay. Well, then what happened is then the next one. The next daughter, half daughter, whatever took over Elizabeth or whatever. And then she had a really, really long reign and she wanted everyone to fulfill her father's wish of having the church of England. And so she brought all of those people out of the darkness, right out of, out of hiding Mm -hmm. and then, but she, the deal was I get to control you. So the people that, that were hiding from bloody Mary. Realized, well, if we come out and rejoin the church of England, then we're under her control. So they remained independent. Okay. And this group of people over time is where the pilgrims came from. Okay. Right. And the pilgrims are the ones that came over and started our and Mayflower, the Mayflower compact, all that the earliest forms of our self governance experiment in government. Okay. So very, everybody was independent in the whole notion of democratic leadership. And so it's really quite fascinating how that happened is that people trying to use Christianity to control people ended up creating democracy in America.
1: Yes. Isn't <laughs> that fascinating? So. Well, and I think, like you said, it's, it's interesting that the thing that they co-opted to try to control the people and do mm-hmm. whatever they want ended up being the thing that ultimately thwarted yeah. them leading to America and democracy and this whole thing. So ultimately the gospel shines through in what it really means to be, even when
0: yeah, you can't control it.
1: Yeah. And so
0: there's only one King and that's Jesus. Yes, absolutely.
1: And he (laughs) made that apparent. So I think it's, it's really interesting just to see the evolution of how yeah, different people have used it and then. Ultimately, anytime you use it for nefarious purposes, it, it seems like it eventually blows back on you. We may not see it yeah. immediately, but eventually it does end up going, no, this is not what this it always self corrects. Yeah. And I think that's super interesting. So yeah, it I is guess interesting. my question is how do we as followers of Christ avoid being manipulated like this by the government authorities that want to use it yes. for their own purposes while also at the same time, being a positive influence on our culture. I'm I'm giving you very narrow parameters. How do we do (laughs) both? Pastor?
0: We'll do a little Bible study. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is in my research, I was studying, uh, Andy Stanley's position on this and his book, not in it to win it. And he says, look, if you pick sides, you get sidelined. And I think what's really interesting is he said, I was embarrassed from some of my pastor friends, Mm -hmm. like in California, trying to assert their rights to gather during the pandemic, it felt, he felt that he was embarrassed by that. Cause he felt that wasn't being a good neighbor, that if you were going to be a good neighbor and love people as you love yourself, you should shut down your church. Right. Mm. And I, I can kind of understand his point, but if I may be so bold as to <laughs> call out Andy Stanley is I think Andy, you're dishonest. That's, that's a dishonest representation because I'm. Over here, what happened in California? It wasn't that churches were saying, we don't care about everybody else. We're going to meet no matter what, what happened is in California. If you owned a pot dispensary, you're allowed to be open. If you had a bar, you were allowed to be open. If you wanted to go and protest in the streets against the president, you were allowed to do that. If you were uh, in, if you had food that you were serving for the movie industry, you were allowed to do that but don't you get together to worship God. Mm. And so what happened is what they were protesting is that Christians were being singled out and told they couldn't meet while everybody else strip clubs, pot dispensaries bars, they were all allowed to stay open and continue as essential businesses. And so that was the issue Mm. and the issue wasn't that we don't want to be good neighbors. The issue is, is that you are unjustly opposing restrictions on churches while you're allowing even larger gatherings than our churches in the streets and everywhere else for your own personal needs. That's what they were protesting. That's why they said, well, if you're going to be inconsistent, make a rule for everybody else that you're not going to follow. That's unjust. That's unrighteous. We're standing up against that." Mm. So. So the question is, is that the the government was trying to manipulate them, Mm -hmm. right? It was trying to basically say in California, we want to encourage these things, which the church considers are bad for people, right? We want to encourage these things and we want to hinder the church. We're going to single the church out for that and Christians. That's unjust. That's wrong. That's against the constitution. So they were standing up to that. And by the way, Mr. Stanley, I'd like to point out that every one of those churches were fined by the state of California, okay. every single one, every court in California upheld those fines. And then the Supreme court came along and said, yeah, you can't do any of that. You guys are all wrong. And so <laughs> all of those fines were all wrapped uh, were all wiped out because of the rulings of the Supreme court. So I think that's an important distinction to make facts matter. So what I, what I, I share that because I want to share with you a biblical principle That brings clarity to a person's role in American politics. And it's called the focus principle. And that is where should you place your focus in order to make the biggest political impact? Okay. Where should you put your focus? So I want to read two passages of scripture, uh, one from Paul, uh, in to the Corinthians, and then one from Paul to the Colossians. And This is in second Corinthians chapter four. It's a section of some of my favorite verses. And this is what he says. We have this treasure in jars of clay. So in other words, we have a treasure here on earth. Mm. See, we're jars of clay and we have a treasure. He goes, and that is, is that we get to show the all surpassing power comes from God and not from us, the potential to change nations and the potential to change and see things politically move towards the better. This comes from God. It doesn't come from me. That's come from you. He says, in the meantime, we are hard pressed on every side, but guess what? We're not crushed. We are perplexed, meaning we don't know what to do, but we never fall into despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are even struck down, but we are never destroyed. We always carry about around in our body, the death of Jesus Christ. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for the sake of Jesus Christ so that it, his life would be revealed in this mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in everyone else. He goes on to say verse 13, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause Thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. In other words, we are struggling. We are difficult. People, sometimes government is trying to manipulate us, use us or oppress us. They cannot stop us because even in our suffering, even in our martyrdom, the grace of God is spreading to more and more people. In verse 16, because of this, do not lose heart though. Outwardly we are wasting away inwardly. We are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So he concludes by saying the focus principle, we focus not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Mm. Then you turn over to Colossians chapter three, beginning with verse three. He says the following, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the principle is quite simple. The more heavenly minded you become, the more earthly impact you have. So that's very important to understand. The more heavenly minded you become, the more earthly impact you will have. If you want to make an impact in the political arena, then focus on things above and you'll find that you will have a greater political impact. Ultimately politics, the arena where power is wielded by people and is designed to control people, or it's designed to give people liberty is ultimately a spiritual battle. So it has to be won on spiritual foundation. And that's why America has become so great. It's also why America has a lot of black eyes and a lot of seedy underbelly. You know, like the number one thing that America exports is what? Take a guess.
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, not agriculture.
0: I would assume. Nope. It's not agriculture. Uh, comes, you could say it's affiliated with Hollywood a little bit. It has to do with media pornography. Number one thing that we export is pornography. Oh my gosh. So these other nations that go, boy, America is so corrupt, I understand why they say that.
1: If that's what they see the most of. If that's what they see the most of.
0: Yeah, excellent. So so anyway, ultimately politics is a spiritual battle and it needs to be won in the spiritual realm, and it can also be run in one in the physical realm.
1: So I mean, we're talking about this idea of the focus principle. You've given us some examples. (laughs) biblically of us being called to that. Do we see this principle present itself in history anywhere? Where do we see it occurring or making a difference? Like, is this a new principle or is this something that's happened before? And and we could see examples. Yeah. I mean,
0: history is just replete with example after example, after example, for instance, I've said this before, but it's, it's a good one. And that is, is that in Rome, Christianity is what ended slavery in the Roman empire. It didn't start off by saying. Hey, we're going to end slavery is a matter of fact, as we said earlier, some people say, well, the new Testament supports slavery. Well, how could they say that? Well, cause it never actually says stop slavery no matter what. So right. it was never a part of the core Christian doctrines, but it was a core Christian doctrines, the values that ended slavery, mm. right? And yes. ended oppression of, uh, all different types. It was Christianity that ended, uh, the slavery of the peasant, you know, the peasant had a form of slavery during feudalism. Mm -hmm. Peasants didn't own their, the land they lived in. They didn't own their house. They, uh, they didn't own their own freedom. They couldn't go move anywhere they wanted to. They couldn't do that. Right. Right. Uh, you belong to the Lord. And if the Lord wanted to go to war, the war the Lord could come and conscript all the males and send them off to war. Right. And so, but Christianity ended that, uh, it was Christianity that ended slavery in England in 1730 and it, and then in 1865, uh, through the emancipation proclamation in the United States of America, it was Christianity that moved the Western world away from political oppression. It put it, it put, uh. Uh, the notion that you could murder your political opponent, uh, the notion that you could seize their property or throw them in prison simply because they disagree with you, it, it, it eradicated that, right. It's it said basically you're not the devil because you disagree with me. And that was the whole reason why America was set up the way it was with debate. It was Christianity that put an end to the slavery of illiteracy. People who couldn't read, there's a notion that well, no knowledge is not reserved for the divine right of Kings. Only Kings can have the knowledge on how to rule, Mm. right? Anybody can. And as a matter of fact, the archetypal stories that tell, uh, talk about this quite extensively, one is the count of Monte Cristo. You see, Mm. here was a man who had lost everything. He goes to prison, but it's through learning, right? That then he is able to come back out, take this wealth and then you know, go about his journey. Yes. Go about his journey. So, but the issue was illiteracy, the capacity to teach people how to read the whole notion that children need to be taught how to read was started in England in, in churches. They called it Sunday school. And the whole point of that was to help kids escape child labor, you know, that they, if they could read, then they would be able to, to escape just being conscripted as child slaves in the Factories, it was Christianity that birthed the scientific revolution. It was Christianity that, uh, brought about an explosion of medical care, the building of hospitals and the desire to care for people in their illness and sickness. So here's the one defining factor in all of these downstream outcomes, right? How, how is it that we did, uh, get rid of illiteracy, scientific revolution, medical care overcome the economic oppression and poverty of the masses. Well, there's one common denominator. Okay. They were all, none of these things were started with that as the end goal in mind, right? Mm -hmm. None of them were started with, Oh, we wanted to end economic oppression of poor people. You know, you don't see a lot of messages starting off Christianity. Jesus talked about stopping this. It, it, It didn't start that way. As a matter of fact, all of these things, happened because people following Jesus were following him to know him more. Why did the scientific revolution start? Because men were wanting to know more about God. Mm. And they said, if we study his creation, we will be able to learn more about him. So that's what started it all And the same thing with why do we want children to be able to read? Why do we want these different things? It was because people were like, well, if then they can read, then they can read the Bible. Right? Right. And so then they can know God more for themselves. So these people launched these social revolutions that we take for granted today, simply because they wanted to know God more. And that's the principle. When you're more heavenly minded, you tend to have a much more powerful earthly impact.
1: Well, and if I bring this down to something more secular where the world has unintentionally started learning the power of putting your values first and having your heavenly focus, and then that will lead out is Apple actually uses a very similar model to this. Have yeah. you heard about this? They no, have I have three not. rings. So they have three rings, which is their outer ring is basically their products mm-hmm. and the things that they make. Their middle ring is basically their culture community development and then their inner rings are basically, what do we value? What is our mission and what are we trying to do? Right. Mm -hmm. And most companies come from the outside in, they go from what are we building? We're building products and that determines our culture. And then that ultimately determines our Our values values. and Apple, one of the most successful companies in America and the world world, has spoken many times that they have always worked and I'm assuming this is a Steve jobs thing from. Inside yeah. out values, so set our values first. Yeah. and that determines our culture and that culture determines what products we make that would then end users enjoy and do whatever. And so ultimately that's secular and whether you like Apple or Steve jobs and what they did, that's a secular thing, but people are starting to realize when you put the core value first, right? it then influences and expands out. And that's what you're calling us to do. Well, that's what the Bible is calling us to do. Exactly. So Keep your mind on heavenly things first and everything else will radiate out from that point. Just like dropping a rock Mm -hmm. in a pond, it will build those waves out. And if you, if you use the butterfly effect as an example, it it can create monsoons in Africa. So how talk to me about how we should. I mean, ultimately here's the question you're probably hearing a lot pastor. How should we vote, (laughs) and how do we influence? Who do I vote for, and how do we influence the people around us to also vote? Yes. Well, if I
0: tell you who to vote for, then I negate my purpose. Okay. And that is, I want you to figure this out on your own. Critical Uh, thinking. Uh, Yeah, and I want you to to figure it out. But I I think you know. Here's how it works. Let me illustrate it like this for you. Okay. And that is because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and my head is stuck in the clouds, the heavenly clouds, as I call it, Mm. that causes me to have a passion for the poor, right. And the downtrodden, I'm very concerned about the poor and the downtrodden. Those who are, uh, less off, uh, not just in America, but across the globe. And because I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't worship a political system. I don't worship an economic system. I don't worship an earthly leader. Therefore, whatever alleviates poverty, the most is what I'm committed to. See, my Mm -hmm. value is as a follower of Christ to alleviate the poverty and its oppression of people. So, because I'm not committed to anything and it's because I'm not committed to an economic, theory of philosophy of man or human political leader, or some political ideology, I can evaluate economic systems. 100% based on their merits, 100%. In other words, does it work or not for alleviating poverty? And what do the facts state? What does research state? What does history state? Well, it states that the free market capitalism has brought more people out of poverty than any other economic system in the history of the world. In the last 50 years, free markets has cut the global poverty rate in half. Mm. Okay. Now this is opposite of the new society started by FDR and then pushed by uh, LBJ who said, Hey, we're going to do a war on poverty and we're going to end it. Poverty in America, since they started uh, welfare and command control of economies and all that stuff has actually grown slightly in America. Mm. It, it it's done the exact opposite of what it's tended to do over the last 70 years, but politically, that's what Americans fight over more than anything else, you know, it's one of the most divisive political issues. And that is, uh, do we want to take government dollars and redistribute that wealth so that we can end poverty? Well, all you have to do is step back and look at globally in his in history. And the, and this is even a better data pool because it transcends religious, cultural, socioeconomic. Traditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can take it and go to China. You can take and go to India. You can take it and go to Africa. And what they found is free market. Capitalism has risen more people out of poverty than anything else. If you really want to end poverty in America, get rid of the welfare state and let people start pursuing the free market economy in their own place. Because what happens is, is that what welfare does is it dehumanizes people and it takes away their self respect and their dignity. That's Mm -hmm. what it does. And poverty is a spiritual process of maturity. And you get out of poverty when you grow, mm. right. And you mature. And so by robbing people, the possibility of maturing, what you're doing is you are locking them forever in poverty. Uh, it's because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ with my head stuck in the heavenly clouds that I believe that good morality is a beneficial to all human beings, I believe that there's an objective truth that dictates our morality to us. I don't make it up. I take it from this objective truth called. God, uh, it's a way of living designed to benefit the human soul. It satisfies your deepest longings. while, at the same time, it restrains your unhealthy appetites that destroy the soul. Everyone agrees that there is a massive moral decline in America right now that started in the sixties. And the question is why is that? And what can we do about it is I have a, a Nobel prize winning economist by the name of Milton Friedman, a very, very short, uh, one minute video who explains this and listen to what he says.
2: there has been a great decline in the moral climate the lack of civility in discussions among people the resort to chance instead of arguments why why have we had such a decline in moral climate i submit to you that a major factor has been because of a change in the philosophies which have been prominent in society from a belief in individual responsibility to a supposed belief in social responsibility from a tendency to get away from the individual, from his responsibility for his own life and his own behavior. If he doesn't behave properly, that's his responsibility and he's to be charged for. To a belief that after all, it's society that is responsible. If you adopt the view that everything belongs to society, then it belongs to nobody. Why should I have any respect for property if it belongs to everybody? If you adopt the view that no man is responsible for his own behavior, because somehow or other society is responsible, Why should he seek to make his behavior good? A set of social institutions which stresses individual responsibility is a kind of a society which is likely to have a much higher and more responsible moral climate than the kind of a society in which you stress the lack of responsibility of the individual for what happens to him.
0: So you see, I I think he's making an excellent point because what I'm realizing is that this is an ideology, this is a value. And my value is, is that I want people to be free moral agents, right? We want Mm. them to choose a higher form of morality. Well, how does that happen? Well, what we do is we emphasize personal responsibility. If we take that away and we start emphasizing social responsible, and this is Rousseau's idea that you're not responsible for your behavior, it's society that causes you to do this. Then what happens is that we see a dramatic moral decline. And that's why Mm. the Rousseauian ideology of society has been so destructive in America's moral climate today. Um, here's another way to think about it. It's because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ with my head stuck in the heavenly clouds, that my concern is the value of every human being, and it is the sovereignty of their free will. I know it is the commitment to protect all innocent human beings. No one can be oppressed. Therefore there's no reason to take innocent human life. It means justice is justice. There are no adjectives that qualify it. It's either just, or it's not. You cannot go and say, we are going to oppress or uh, lump in and categorize a group of people based on social status, language, the color of their skin or anything else. And then try to make them pay for some past injustice from three centuries ago. That it's it just, that is absurd beyond belief. And that's what. Milton Friedman was just talking about, mm. he says, when you start to do that, the moral climate drops, but most importantly, as a follower of Christ, I feel that people are robbed of the capacity to meet Jesus because they don't feel that they have any sovereignty of their own. It's another way to look at it because I value uh, every living soul as God values them. I have devoted my life to helping you, every listener, every person I have ever met for that moment when you stand before god and you give an account for yourself mm. that's what i've devoted my life to so that there's not going to be a group of people a tribe even your family it's going to be you all alone standing before god and in second corinthians chapter 5 verse six, it says we will all stand before the judgment seat and we will give an account for what we have done in our lives. And guess what? I want to prepare you for standing before there and saying, I don't deserve anything, but Jesus steps forward and says, this person is mine. This person is my child. I bought this person with my blood and I adopted them into my family. They belong to me. That is the power of the gospel. And when Jesus stands before me, and says this, I have been bought, I have been paid for, I now belong to him. When you get that as the core value of your life, no matter how, you'll have your head in the clouds every single day, but that will give you the most powerful life here on earth that you could ever imagine.
1: Well, thank you pastor for sharing so much with us today. I'm excited to hear even more on Thursday because we did some Bible study today and you're already kind of dipping into the application. We hit some history, so I can't imagine what you're going to be sharing with us on Thursday. So I encourage you guys to have conversations about what we learned today. Make sure this is an active participation, whether you're dropping comments on the video or in, in, uh, on the podcast, whatever, Mm. wherever you're getting these podcasts or. If you are engaging on social media or you're just doing it in the comfort of your house with someone you care about, who you want to have a deeper understanding of the Bible and what that means, I encourage you to have conversations because that's the only way you can clarify what you believe. So thank you guys so much for joining us. And we'll see you on Thursday here on the Salty Pastor (laughs) Podcast. Blessings.